Hey there, welcome to another episode of Close to the Vest. My name is Arthur Ettinger, and this is going to be a really great episode. We are uh, fortunate to have in the studio Lou Sircone. Uh, Lou Sircone is the managing director of Brisbane Consulting Group. Uh, Lou, thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So, Lou, you head up the Business Valuation Forensic Accounting and Litigation Support Services at Brisbane. That's correct. Can you tell um, the audience exactly what that means? Sure. Our, our firm is a wholly owned subsidiary of a large accounting firm. And probably about 30 years ago, we spun off from the accounting firm as a subsidiary to do nothing but business valuations. So we value closely held businesses. Uh, we also do investigative accounting, fraud audits. Uh, we're either hired by uh, attorneys or the courts to assist them in arriving at value or income. Sure. And so this is, you know, obviously this is a relationship podcast. I know we, uh, you're regularly um, retained or appointed in the context of a divorce. Um, but you do other valuations uh, in non-matrimonial matters, correct? We do. We do. We're, we're, we're involved in valuations for estate tax and, and gift tax purposes, um, in matrimonial actions, of course, but also in corporate divorces, where partners or uh, fellow shareholders are, are splitting up and dividing or leaving uh, the company. So we're valuing uh, that interest uh, for uh, to eliminate to establish a price for a buyout. And if someone wants to get in contact to you with you, how do they reach you? Well, they can reach me by email at lcerconi at brizcon.com. That's C-E-R-C-O-N-E at brizcon.com. Or our uh, toll-free number is 800-795-6027. Awesome. And so before we jump into the topic, which is really uh, informative today, um, can you just share a little bit about your background? Sure. Sure. I've <clears throat> been in the accounting profession, valuation profession, mostly forensic accounting uh, for the past 30 years. Uh, prior to that, I was in the restaurant business. Uh, I owned my own restaurant. I owned my own bakery. I owned my own bar. I actually, I didn't know that. That's yes. awesome. Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, <clears throat> yes, we, I worked for a, a large a multi-theme restaurant called Specialty Restaurants, and they had restaurants all over the country. And I was their director of operations. That's got to come in handy when you're valuing um, an entity in the hospitality world. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And being a former bar owner myself, it also comes in handy when you're dealing with cash businesses. I was just going to say, this is really what the wheelhouse for today. This is really, you truly are the uh, expert. Um, so let's just jump right in. Sure. Okay. Um, a lot of people um, deal with this issue in, in the context of a divorce. There is a cash business. And so... Um, and people are wondering whether they're going through a divorce or they're in the middle of it and they just uh, maybe they don't have uh, someone like yourself uh, already appointed or in place. Um, can we, let's start with, um, I guess, basics. You know, what's a cash business? Sure. You know, a cash business is any business that handles cash or that 
has the ability to handle cash. And that that's a wide range of businesses. But when I make the distinction uh, for us, a cash business is any business with a cash register. That's taking in cash uh, uh, as part of the normal everyday business operation. So it's a retail, a retail business. Uh, there could be other types of cash businesses, like, for example, a landscaper. Uh, he may not or she may not uh, have a cash register, of course, but they deal in cash. They transact in cash. Uh, and as opposed to maybe an auto dealer that can do cash, he can handle cash, but they don't typically deal in cash. They don't typically sell a car for cash. Unless, of course, maybe it's a small used car dealer, and that might be a, a very heavy, intensive cash business. I get it. And and so you're now appointed, okay? And we'll get into the issue of appointment versus uh, retained. Sure. Because um, I think that's really important. And in, in any case, uh, that decision has to be made. Um how are you valuing a cash business? Well, when, when we look at valuation in a general sense, Arthur, we're, we're typically for most small businesses looking at an income approach. So what that means is we're looking at what's the income generating capacity of the business and how can that income be converted into value. So, of course, for any business, we have to determine what that true income is. Okay. And so there has to be <laughs> some shortcomings or challenges uh, by figuring out income if we're valuing a cash business. Well, correct. You know, for, for most businesses, and whether they be cash business or not, uh, we have to keep in mind that the overall goal of that business owner is to minimize taxes. And the only way to do that is to minimize income. In some cases, it's a legal minimization of income. In other cases, it's not legal. So the challenge of a cash business is first quantifying what that income is. And, and how do you go about doing that? Well, there's several procedures that are used. I mean, in the uh, instant sense, uh, we're first looking at the tax return. What is the reported income? We might compare that uh, income on the tax return to uh, a statement of net worth, which is uh, an affidavit that parties fill out at the beginning of their divorce that summarizes their income and their expenses. Uh, once that we know that, uh, that the income might be understated, and that could be from a variety of sources, and in many cases the attorneys are telling us, we need you to go in and do some investigative procedures to tell us what the true income is. We're convinced that it's not, that it's not proper, that it's, that it's understated. So there's many, many uh, procedures we might have to do to look at the, uh, the books and the records of the business. <clears throat> Can you elaborate on those procedures? Sure. So the first thing that we do, <clears throat> I'll call it maybe an internal investigation where we're actually looking at uh, the underlying books and records for 
what we call a general ledger. And that's a collection of all the accounts of the business. And we're looking at those expenses to determine uh, if those expenses are all business-related. So often what we'll see is, for example, under uh, entertainment or meals, we'll see several expenditures that may not have a business purpose. So we'll identify those, those expenses, and those will be added back or uh, <clears throat> eliminated from the expenses of the business, added back to income. In many cases of a cash business, though, the records are not such, the business records, that is, they're not such where you can uh, identify unreported income issues. So what you have to do is there are other procedures that we look to. Uh, one of those procedures is a lifestyle analysis. Okay, yeah. Okay, another procedure is we'll do some markup testing uh, or benchmarking or we'll just do some observations. So I'll discuss each one of those because they're, they're important. Uh, the first one, the lifestyle analysis, is where we're actually comparing household spending uh, to the reported income. Uh, this is where we're looking at uh, checking account statements, credit card statements, uh, and we're comparing those statements and those expenditures to what is reported as income on the tax return. Uh, so what we end up doing in a lifestyle analysis is we're identifying what the parties are spending and comparing it to uh, their level of income. And often there's a big gap. Sure. And so I would love, and we, you're typically, or you're engaged in a lifestyle analysis, whether or not there's a cash business uh, or not. Sometimes there's a, an issue and we're fighting over uh, what's the level of support going to be. And rather than have both sides just fight, we just hire a forensic account like yourself to conduct a lifestyle analysis. I think it's especially important in a case where there is a cash business because you're never going to truly capture uh, or get closer to the, the true value without conducting such analysis. Can you speak to the timing? Because it's often a question for individuals and then maybe their lawyers when to bring in the forensic account. Sure. We, we always recommend that if there is a business, a closely held business, if there's any issue of where the tax returns are called into question, we always ask the attorneys to bring us in as early as possible so that we can assist the attorneys in discovery, that is requesting documents of the business owner. Uh, if there's depositions of the business owner, we can assist if we're brought in too late, uh, we may not have the opportunity to do the discovery or we may not have the opportunity to interview that business owner or perform any what we'll call site visits or on-site type of procedures uh, if it's too late in the process. And on the site visits, can you just elaborate what, like, uh, what you're referring to? In a valuation of a closely held business, we find it invaluable to go into the business and interview the business owner. And in some, in some cases, we might want to interview other members of management. 
Uh, but when we're talking about a site visit, that's where I'm going in, I'm interviewing the business owner, and I may be doing some procedures on site to uh, verify certain aspects of income and expenses. For example, uh, I may ask to see all the vendor invoices for advertising, uh, all the expense reports for uh, auto expense and uh, meals and entertainment to see if they're, in fact, business-related. Sure. And you mentioned a very <coughs> prevalent issue and an issue, an issue that people need to really pay close attention, at least in my view, how... The, the challenge of documents and that, you know, missing documents in evaluate. What do you do in a situation like that? Well, you know, when we're talking about business owners that are intentionally underreporting their income, they are going to have as few documents as possible for you to look at. Sure. They're not going to be opening up their books and records and saying, here it is. Uh, so we have to do other procedures, and one of those is a lifestyle analysis. Another might be benchmarking. So benchmarking is a procedure where we have access to a wide variety of industry sources that tell us what the typical sales are, the typical gross profit is, the typical the typical operating profit is of various businesses in this industry. So we can take a look at certain aspects of the company itself or the business itself and make some estimates as to what their income should be based on their industry counterparts. So that's one way to circumvent the deficiency in document production. And, and then, so you mentioned before um, markup testing. Can you explain what that is? Markup testing is actually using purchase records to back into actual sales. For example, if I've, if I've purchased uh, 100 cases of beer uh, and beer is uh, $5 a bottle, I'm going to say that I'm going to use that 100 cases of beer, what I purchased, times the $5 for the bottle that I would sell it for, and those sales is what I should have recorded for that particular product line in a particular period. Actually, New York State sales tax uses markup testing all the time. And <clears throat> what's interesting about those type of uh, sales tax audits is, is that incomplete records is not a defense. Um, a great example of that, I was involved in defending uh, a bar uh, from a New York State sales tax audit. And what the bar owner was doing was uh, these registers that they had, they were old-style registers, and they had a what they call a Z-tape, which is a record of all the transactions every day. Well, of course, those tapes were not retained because it would have shown how the owner stopped ringing sales at a particular point in the day, pocketed the cash, wow. uh, and then uh, resumed operations. Uh, so um, the sales tax people, though, you know, having incomplete records is incomplete records. So their audit carries the day. There's no defense. 
just because you don't have your Z tapes or your cash register records on a daily basis, that's still an ad back. And I typically agree with that. I, I would say that that's how I, how I approach uh, an audit. You know, here's my procedures, here's my estimates of the true income, but if, and if you can't defend that, Sure. And I, I think because you've thrown away the records. Right. That's the way it goes. Um, so, and you talked about, uh, briefly, you hit about, hit on the issue of a site visit. Um, what's the difference between, let's say, a site visit, and you also mentioned we've spoken offline about a spotter. Right. So can you... Explain, first of all, what a spotter is, and then most people can probably figure out what the difference is right there. Right. Well, the, you know, the spotter, we talk about we're, we're, we're doing some observations. In many cases, I'll send somebody from my office to uh, go to the business as a patron. And, uh, for example, a bar or restaurant, and sometimes you get very, very lucky and uh, the person, that the people that we generally send are, are trained uh, to make observations. How many people are working? How many registers are being used? Uh, in one particular case, uh, my associate went in. He had lunch at the bar, uh, and he was lucky enough to strike up a conversation with the bartender. The bartender told him you know, what, you know, how busy the place is, how busy the place awesome. gets. Uh, he was able to observe how many registers uh, were were being used. Um, he paid for cash for his lunch. Um, was he was able to observe? Did I get a receipt? Was it rung up? You know, all of those things. And he was there for a good two hours. Um, now, when I came in uh, for the site visit, so that was the spotter report. The site visit. There was one less register. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, um, and, and, you know, a totally different uh, um, uh, story from the business sure. as to how busy it is, when they're busy, staffing, right? When, um, and, and business owners will ask you, especially in the restaurant business, they'll ask you, can, well, can, can you come in at 9 in the morning or can you come in after hours? Right. You know, they don't want you in there during the peak business hours. And, and you know, to be fair, you don't want to interrupt the business. Uh, but on the other side of it, you have to be able to observe uh, what type of business <clears throat> and the business volume. And that's the idea of a spotter, to just go in and take a look. I love these stories, and I'm, I want to ask, I want to just hear story after story. Um, in a bar setting or a restaurant setting, you can, you can have someone, a spotter, camp out. It's easy. Someone's sitting there, they're nursing a drink, they're not going to be as concerned. But there's other, you know, uh, businesses that are uh, rely on cash for income that may be more challenging for you as the uh, expert valuing the entity. How do you deal with that? Well, there, there was a, uh, in one example, uh, I mean, sometimes the spotters are, are very helpful and other times it's not practical. So for example, um, what I think are some of the most uh, 
rich in cash unreporting of cash income are probably some contractors and uh, landscapers. Now, I, I had a contractor where he did a lot of DOT work. And what he did was he was the guy that laid all the asphalt for the, for the throughways and the main roads. And what he did was he made up flyers for all of the neighborhood homes along the street and said for $1,000 or $1,500, we'll repave your driveway. So he was using DOT materials to repave the driveway. Wow. But, and then pocketing the cash, and it was strictly cash, okay? So he had a lot of takers. Sure. Now, unless you're out there watching this, you're never going to find it, all right? What happened for us is the wife in this case gave us about a dozen of the flyers that he was using to pass out to the customers on the freeway. So we had some evidence that this was going on. But what makes this very difficult for contractors, landscapers too, I mean, my landscaper has asked me many times, given me two prices for my work. Uh, You know, it's $50 a cut in cash, 75 if you're going to pay by check. Sure. So... But those things where there's no tracing of materials, where there's no tracing of material cost, I mean, he can cut my lawn and my neighbor's lawn in 15 minutes and collect $75 in cash without reporting the other 75 Sure. So it, those are very, very difficult to zero in on, and that's probably in cases where I would have to go more towards a lifestyle analysis uh, to just look at spending to back into the income because in those type of businesses, cash, there's no audit trail. Sure. I feel my general rule is if it's a cash business, even if you're finding a lot of documents, more than most, you still have to do a lifestyle analysis. You just have to, belts and suspenders. You, you could be right there, uh, Arthur, and, and many people might would agree with you on that. Um, the, uh, the only thing that uh, might prohibit uh, you from doing that is the cost. Sure. Um, and the cost might be prohibitive. I mean, these things can be expensive uh, in many cases, and, and I'm always amazed at this. I mean, in my own house, I have one checking account. Right. And I have one credit card, one for me, for my wife and I, and one for business. I keep them separate. I mean, I've been into lifestyle analysis where we have seven or eight different bank accounts. Sure. 25 to 30 credit card accounts. And they're bouncing money and credit back and forth. And it can be very, very time consuming. And when it's time consuming, it's very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um. And when you, can you give just, if you're just doing a lifestyle analysis, a lot of times, uh, conversely, if somebody doesn't want to spend the, the cost of doing a full valuation, that con- sometimes we have the conversation with the client where we're saying, okay, maybe we're just going to do a lifestyle analysis. Um, and aren't there certain, you know, circumstances where essentially you can kind of keep the cost at least a, a bit more manageable? If, if you have to pick one, maybe it's we're going to just do a lifestyle analysis. 
I think I, I think that uh, in a lot of cases, uh, attorneys probably above anything else when it comes to the financial aspects of a divorce need to know or quantify income. They have to have that, sure. whether it be for valuation purposes, uh, and attorneys will often uh, make the call. It's a small business. We really don't care. It's not going to be a lot of money, uh, but we need to know the income mm-hmm. because it might not be a valuation case, but it's always a support case. Sure. All right. And, and, th- and that's where that lifestyle analysis could be very helpful. What I try to recommend to attorneys is let's keep the time period uh, condensed. A lot of times attorneys will come out of the, out of the box saying they want to do eight years or nine years of lifestyle analysis. Why? Why? You don't need it. Um, One other thing that's probably important to mention is that when we're doing lifestyle analysis and we're considering 2020, the year that we just had, is that a true picture of the actual lifestyle? Um, Being that people weren't traveling, weren't doing vacations, were staying home, weren't spending a lot of money dining out. So in a lot of cases, what I'm being asked to now, in this present day, is give us a lifestyle analysis for 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see what it was pre-COVID, pre-pandemic. That might give us an idea of what we need to do going forward. But I always try to tell attorneys, let's limit the years to two years maximum. Sure. And with leave to expand the analysis if you feel it's necessary. Yeah, I can't believe someone would ask for an eight-year lifestyle analysis. That's uh... We were asked just not a month ago to do 12 years. Uh, and I think that they went back to court and even the judge said, you're nuts. Yeah, I, I don't see how any judge would really care what you did a decade ago. No, but part of it, part of it was not only to look at the lifestyle, uh, but there was also accusations of dissipation of marital assets. And that's how they wanted to do that analysis to go that far back. I know this is not why you're here. I love the topic of dissipation of assets. It's very hot. And um, can you just explain, just for the person listening in, who may not um, just understand or know what you're talking about, what you're referring to? Sure. Um, You know, everything uh, earned or acquired during the marriage is, is marital property in our state. And... If one spouse uh, over the other has control of the checking account or control of the funds, uh, there are often cases where that spouse has uh, made investments, what I'll call outside of the marriage, <laughs> or has, has hobbies uh, that may be um, uh, nefarious, to say, to say lack so of a nicely. better word. Um, so we had one case where it was it was it was sad actually where the husband was uh, using marital funds uh, for uh, his uh, sexual addictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was flying women in from Russia, uh, and we were looking at three to four years of of significant spending uh, in all of those areas, and it was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, on an annual basis. Uh, and that's where, that's a dissipation of marital assets. 
um, <clears throat> this the wife in this particular case was looking to recover all you know her fifty percent share. Uh, I think the total amount by the time we we're done was almost seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars over a four year period. Yeah, I, I remember uh, our office had a case with uh, you uh, analyzing the dissipation, and it was significant. And I, you know, people always, I think, litigates always, you know, rightfully so, are mindful of costs, and they're looking to cut corners. Um, but I believe that you're invaluable in bringing a resolution and doing that type of analysis or even, and I was going to ask you before, well, when you had, you got those flyers. To me, those are, that's like a turning point where you can um, help be instrumental in settling the case. I have to believe that once you got a hold of that, you were able to have a meeting um, or the lawyer with your assistance to help resolve the case. Right. The flyers, the flyers are, are helpful in that they, uh, they alert us to the there is unreported income, but they, in and of themselves, they weren't helpful in quantifying the unreported income. Sure. So what, you know, when you have what we'll call the smoking gun, for right. example, uh, in, many ca- in many cases over my 30-year career, I have gotten a hold of uh, through the assistance of, of one spouse uh, of, or the other, uh, of the second set of books. Uh, and they can be, that's the smoking gun. That's where you see, because many business owners where they're not recording, they, they want to record what they actually did. So there is a record out there somewhere. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> when we were doing a, a site visit, the business owner allowed me to sit at his computer to access uh, his general ledger through QuickBooks. And as I sat there at the computer um, and I went to the file explorer, there was Quick QB1 and QB2. Awesome. Okay. So he was running two sets of QuickBooks. Now, he made the mistake of opening the door, just opening the door. And I was sitting at his desk at his computer, the QB2 was the real set of books. Now, you don't get that lucky yeah, exactly. all the time. You know? Were you a neutral or were you uh, representing one side? We were, represent, we were representing the non-titled spouse. Oh, man, that that's case. like the best phone call oh. you can get. Yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't beat that. Uh, there was a, another case with a uh, junkyard in uh, Buffalo uh, where the owner of the junkyard, it it was kind of neat how they did this. He had like a petty cash drawer out in the, in the yard. Okay. And that was where he would be buying junk parts and he would have to, by law record because he'd be taking in a junk car. He'd have to record the name and address and phone number of the customer. And he'd pay, for example, $200 for the junk car. When he'd go into the cashier into the business to reconcile all the cars that he bought, he increased each receipt by a couple hundred dollars. So if he bought 20 cars in that day, he would have another 4000 where he would increase uh, the expenses. Uh, so the receipts would have the name and address of the customer, 
but instead of 200 which is what he actually paid, it would be 400 Wow. So he actually kept the, uh, the expenses were overstated in the business, and he made cash from that overstatement. Well, the wife in this particular case collected all of those receipts in a big bag. She went into the dumpster and took them all out, gave them to our office. We sorted them, and then we started calling the customers to get the actual price paid. In each case, it was $200 off. Uh, So the attorney that I was working with deposed him, and we presented him with that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I love that. So, but that's really not always the case. And so there's the practical and there's the, you know, the reality of the situation. And I always tell clients in situations like that, don't ever expect us to truly find what's really going on. We may, we're going to, spend a lot of time trying to figure it out but uh, no matter what you're not going to find everything can you just speak right. to that right it's it's impossible to uh, quantify all the unreported income uh, and one of those reasons is because uh, business owners are getting better at it uh, you know as they get as they as they uh, underreport their income each year and get away with it. They they find new ways of circumventing any type of audit procedures. For example, the bar owner um, knows that we're going to do a markup test. Uh, we're going to be looking at purchases to back into his actual sales. So what he'll do is he'll per- make purchases in cash as well. So it's paying people off the books. Sure. You know, it's showing less expenses so that your profit margins are more in line with the industry. So that's where, again, you know, you have to look at other ways uh, to uh, try to quantify income, but at the end of the day, you're not going to find it all. Sure. It's it's just impossible. Uh, But you try to get to a number that can be workable. Can we, can we work with this number, whether it be valuation or income? Can we work with the value that we have? Is it something that can help the attorneys settle the case? Sure. And um, are, there, do you, are there other challenges that you see um, as the forensic expert? in valuing a cash business? Uh, certainly. I mean, the first of all, you know, the, the time and expense is a challenge. Uh, the, uh, the, record, the poor record keeping is a challenge. Um, but when we're using estimates and statistical data to uh, estimate true income, you're, you're always subject to, uh, it, they are estimates. Uh, when you mentioned earlier, you can never get it all, or you can never figure that, uh, or feel that you, you're 100% correct. Uh, a lot of what we do is based on our professional judgment and based on estimates, based, whether it be from statistical data, whether it be from looking at purchase records and, and looking at markups. Uh, for example, 
a bar owner could say, well, um, I have a lot of specials. I give a lot away or my employees are stealing from me. So, right. you know, shrinkage or employee theft uh, is a real issue. I mean, bar owners face that every day. Uh, so you can't just be so black and white and strict, uh, you know, without making some allowances sure. uh, and making sure that your estimates are reasonable. And these, the issues that you come across with a cash business, are, are you reflecting that in your report? Yes. You know, when we do, when we do a report, uh, especially when it's a cash business, I'll always ask the attorneys for a conference before I present my findings. I have that latitude when I'm a neutral or a court-appointed expert. Uh, I don't like to put into a report that we found hundreds of thousands of unreported income. Right. Uh, in a report that our office did just six, seven months ago, the unreported income on an annual basis was $800,000. Um, that's wow. tax fraud. Wow. That's criminal. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a huge issue. Um, I know that the attorneys, uh, and you could probably speak to this uh, better than I can, but that's not something you want before a judge. Right. Or then you have this scenario where, the wife, well, I, I don't want to say the wife, the non-titled spouse is making great overtures about all the money that's being hidden. And then there's a joint tax return. Right. And they're showing $50,000, but they're driving a Range Rover and there's, you know, a house in the Hamptons and uh, you need to go ring up the spouse. Right. Right. The, you know, the IRS has innocent spouse rules uh, where, uh, and the tests are more, uh, are more strict now than they used to be. Uh, so if the spouse um, uh, may not have known, but should he or she have known uh, that the income uh, that they signed on the income tax return uh, was not correct, uh, then they will not get innocent sure. spouse treatment. Uh, there's also cases uh, that have been before our courts in New York State that prohibit a spouse from taking a contrary position uh, to what he or she took on a previous tax return. Uh, so in many cases, uh, you know, the, the non-moneyed spouse uh, does have some challenges in proving uh, or in establishing the need for someone to go in and uh, investigate the true income. Sure. Um, so can you talk, I just want like, and we're, I'd like you to just explain out, there's a concept that you and I are well familiar with, and that's the double dipping concept. Um, can you just explain for the audience uh, in the context of, you're valuing a business. What is that double-dipping concept? Sure, sure. Once income is converted into the value of an asset, that same level of income can no longer be used to pay spousal support or to value a second asset. Um, to give you an example, when we're doing um, uh, the valuation of a typical business, and let's say the income is 500000 And when we're looking at value, we have to determine 
what the cost it is to replace the owner of that business. So let's say we've got a lawyer that's making $500,000 a year. Uh, We would look to the cost to replace that lawyer. That's called replacement compensation or reasonable compensation. And we say that that should be $250,000 a year. Well, that $250,000, the $500,000 less the $250,000, that's what's converted into value. Mm -hmm. You can't then come and say, for maintenance or spousal support purposes, we want to use the 500000 It has to be used on the 250000 to eliminate that double dip or duplication of income. Sure. I, thank you. Um, we often see there will be... Um, when you get the documents uh, during discovery where a spouse who has been in the dark and because typically it's not the scenario where uh, the non-titled holder is working in the business. That's just very rare. Right. And so now you get, you get the documents and all that income we thought was income or they thought was income that they've been telling us uh, on all those phone calls and meetings. Now it says, loans. Can you, can you talk about that challenge? Sure, sure. Uh, business owners will often uh, uh, make loans to themselves. Um, it's legal. It's, it's not illegal to loan yourself money as a business owner. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes they're, and they're recorded as a loan due from the owner, a loan due from shareholder. Uh, and, um, but it's, uh, you know, whether it's income or, uh, or not is, is not always cut and dry. Um, in other words, uh, a business owner may be able to loan himself uh, a certain sum of money in one particular year, uh, but he can only do that if the cash flow is there for him to do it. Uh, so uh, whereas you, you might have uh, an accumulation of loan accounts, Uh, and the business owner might say, well, I owe the business a million dollars because over the past 20 years he's just been borrowing um, money as it goes along, and then he says, I've got got a debt. Well, uh, we might look at that and say it was actually a cash distribution or a dividend from the business and not really a loan. In rare cases where you will find if there's a loan, there should be a loan agreement. So there should be a right. promissory note, a promise to pay, a loan document. You'll n- very rarely see that in the closely held business. So in many cases, we'll just take the loans, eliminate them, look at them as, as cash distributions in the past. They're not an add back to income uh, because income is income. That's not, you know, a sure. loan is more of a balance sheet item. That's more of a... Of, a, of, a, of an expense that it's not an expense, it's an expenditure. As an expert, I just want to pivot a little bit. As an expert, um, you know, we've identified that you can be a neutral, uh, appointed by a court, or agreed by the parties through their lawyers that you're going to be a neutral um, versus. Um, retained by one of the parties. 
Can you just speak to the advantages and disadvantages of each scenario? Sure. I think that uh, as a court-appointed neutral, one advantage is uh, that there's a, uh, a saving of fees. It's not as expensive. You may get more of an impartial uh, look at the business, the value, the income. Uh, and when I say impartial, as experts, we're always required to render an impartial, independent opinion. Uh, however, there is some latitude in what we do in terms of we will try to always, if I'm be, uh, hired on behalf of one spouse or the other, to put the most reasonable opinion forward. Uh, but when an expert is court-appointed as a neutral, uh, he's looking at it uh, without any partiality either way, trying to do the best, um, give the best uh, answer for the attorneys that he can. The, the, the disadvantage in having a neutral is in the highly contentious type cases where the non-moneyed spouse may need to have her own expert on her side or his side to look at various expenses that the neutral might might not consider or might think it's beyond the scope of his engagement. For example, as a neutral, I can't discuss with one party or the other sure. their concerns, their claims, uh, only to a certain point. So I'm kind of um, uh, hamstrung into uh, just doing a job where uh, I'm the neutral and trying to render an unbiased opinion, I'm not necessarily going on this, I'll call it a fishing expedition, which it might turn out to be sure. on behalf of one spouse or the other. Uh, so in, in many of these contentious cases where there's a, a claim of significant underreporting of income, uh, I'm always more comfortable when the attorneys get an expert uh, for, the, for, for, for each spouse. And I know uh, working with you and working with other um, forensic experts that there's, there's a report and then there's a preliminary report. And can you just speak to, to the differences between those two? Because there may be some people who just don't know um, that there is, they just, we have a neutral, we have an expert, they have to issue this full-blown report, and and then we're waiting for that. Right. I, uh, you know, in, in, in my firm, our policy is we always issue a preliminary report for the attorneys as a neutral. And a preliminary report may be only six or seven pages. It may be very limited. It may not have all of the information uh, that we did in developing our opinion. Uh, and uh, because of that, it's less expensive. Uh, in many cases, not only, uh, you know, keep in mind, there's reporting requirements and uh, developing the opinion requirements. So in developing the analysis, we may just look at the tax returns. We may just look at general business records and develop a, a valuation estimate based on a preliminary look at the documents. And then we'll issue a very, very, short form letter report and the attorneys might look at that and in many cases they do look at that and they say that that's this this is sufficient you're done and um, that's for 
Being conscious of the costs. Being conscious of the costs. But in, and in many cases, uh, Arthur, for example, if I'm valuing a, um, a lawyer uh, in a uh, 30, 40 partner law firm. Sure. All right. Uh, there's not a there's not a lot of unreported income right. here. There's not a lot of issues. Um, the valuation methodology is, uh, has been well established. All of us experts would probably use the exact methodology in determining this uh, particular lawyer's value. And in those cases, it can be a, a very simple exercise, a very simple uh, report that gives the lawyer's this is a rate, and we, we may express it as a range of value. The value is between five hundred and seven hundred thousand, uh, and the individual's true income is four hundred thousand dollars per year. And in in many cases, lawyers, accountants, maybe a dental office, a physician practice, uh, those can be done fairly easily and fairly inexpensively. So now I know you mentioned in a setting where you're the neutral. Um, one side or neither side is able to converse with you. However, there's all there's typically the scenario after you've issued your preliminary report where both sides uh, will now ask you questions and send you questions and comments uh, in response to your preliminary report. And I just think it's important for people um, can, to to know this, and can you just share the reason why? Sure. Um, we issue a preliminary report, one, for them to um, look at all the facts of the case. Um, sometimes there might be uh, some factual error that we may have, we may have made and, and we want to correct it, uh, and that might affect value. Uh, but in many cases, uh, the attorneys will ask questions like, well, um, you know, in, in looking at the last five years, why didn't you give any weight to the most recent year? Well, what was that about the, you know, when you were developing a level of income and you're looking at average of the last five or six or seven years, what made you uh, give this, these years the weighting that you did? We, we think it should be this. Sure. Um, and uh, the, as I mentioned earlier, the level of replacement compensation for the business owner. Uh, often that's an area where uh, people uh, can argue about and, and can give their opinions. Uh, we use valuation multiples, uh, whether it's a multiple of three, multiple of four, uh, multiple of five. Sure. Uh, attorneys will have their This comments. is what we fight over. This is what we... and. Uh, but what, at the end of the day, the neutral is there to answer questions from both sides. It may be done in writing with a copy to, to everyone involved. Uh, and I like to do it by a phone conference uh, or by a Zoom meeting uh, where we can explain this is what we did, this is, what we, uh, this is how we looked at it. And you know, I, w I will say, too, that uh, one thing that I've always learned is I'm open to a criticism, a critique. I'm open to somebody might, I, I've often heard from an attorney and said, you know, did you think about this? And I said, right. no, I, I could have maybe given that a little bit more thought now, now that I'm thinking about yeah. it. I, I think that that's a reasonable criticism of what we did here. That's great. And to your point, do you find that those questions 
or comments after you issue your preliminary report ever move the needle? Uh, very rarely, um, they do because you know they only because uh, in a lot of cases we're very careful to make sure that we've done our due diligence. Um, and there's a wide range of uh, attorney expertise. And when it comes to financial issues, uh, attorneys find that their weak point, that they're not, you know, some are very strong, some know what a capitalization rate is sure. and a discount for lack of marketability, uh, and they have all the valuation textbooks in their office. Right. That's when you know you're dealing with somebody right. who knows what they're doing, right? But in many cases, they're asking questions that may not be relevant, but to them, they're relevant, sure. and to their client, they're sure. relevant. And so you've been doing this a long time. Yes. Tell, um, tell me your wildest uh, story as a forensic accountant. I think that the, I don't know if it's all that wild, but getting back to my junkyard story, when we went out there to do our uh, investigative work, he came out and he had two um, pit bulls on a leash and he had two guns in his belt pocket on a, like a cross draw type. And I was out there with a young lady uh, who was doing the audit with me and the poor thing, I thought she was gonna just faint uh, and he was just being intimidating. Uh, you know, he was just, you know, wanting people to know that, uh, you know, that uh, he wasn't, uh, we were going to be afraid of him. But what he didn't know was I had the bag of all of his receipts. That's awesome. uh, and uh, so I think that, you know, that was probably the, uh, uh, one of the most, uh, you know, that sticks out in my mind and it probably happened 20 years ago. There was another case where the uh, pizza pizza shop owner uh, he said <clears throat> in his uh, uh, in an on-site that all of his business was takeout and I believed him because he had a very small place but he had a very very popular place so the attorney subpoenaed all of his phone records and we added up all of the incoming calls into the pizza shop over the span of three four months and multiplied it by his average ticket, by his average check. Um, and the amount of unreported income was substantial. Awesome. And there was nothing he could do to argue that because it was his own phone record. That's amazing. So I think those are, the, those are the, probably the most, uh, uh, you know, the, the more, uh, you know, where, where, you get to, where you get to look at some data sure. that you can develop some, uh, some good estimates. We had a limousine company, for example, and he had seven or eight limos. I can't remember exactly how many, but he took them to have them repaired. And you know yourself, when you have your, your car repaired, they record the odometer, the mileage. Uh, so <clears throat> we were able to subpoena the repair shop <clears throat> and get all of the odometer readings That's amazing. for the cars to determine how many miles he was driving. And then we looked at industry data to look at what's the average fee per mile in Long Island Fantastic. for limousine companies. And we were able to develop a reasonable analysis of 
of of this individual's income from his limo company. And no, he would never would have thought about that. That's no, great. I don't think he would have he would have thought about that. No, it's fantastic. So I'm going to pivot a little bit. Um, it is a relationship podcast, so I have to uh, go there. Um, I know you're uh, a grandpa. I know you're happily married. What's the secret sauce? Uh, well, I've, I've been married to my wife, Debbie, for I think it's 42 years. Um, and I think the secret sauce for us was uh, when I met her, she was 16, I was 19. Uh, we had all our kids by the time she was 24, I think, 25, all three children. Um, and it wasn't always easy. As a matter of fact, there were some horrible, horrible times. Uh, I remember hiding from the paper boy uh, because I didn't have enough money to pay the paper boy. Uh, so I figured I'd just wow. catch him next week. Uh, we just, you know, we struggled. And I think because of that struggle, we, we went through it together. So now we're on the other side of it. And, uh, you know, it's just, I, I think fighting together and getting through it together and just longevity, you know, for, for me, I couldn't imagine life without her. Uh, and, uh, and, and there are times when she looks at me like I'm the dumbest human being in the world. And I, I, I know that look and I could tell by that look, but we get through it. And, uh, so I, I don't have any secret sauce other than, mm. you know, after a while, it just seems that, you know, 42 years, I mean, I can't think of, you know, what it'd be without her. That's amazing. <laughs> 42 years, you, and there's no... There's no paper boy anymore. No That's paper amazing. boy. No paper boy anymore. Yeah, I just pay the bill online That's for awesome. the whole year in advance. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you coming here. I I appreciate all the work that you do. Um, you're awesome, and um, I have one last question for you. Sure. So I ask, um, I ask all my guests. Uh, um, I'm a sneaker fan. So, uh, what's your favorite sneaker? I don't even know if I have a favorite sneaker. I, if I had to look at my sneakers in my workout room, I don't know if I could even tell what I have. I think I just get uh, New Balance because they're made in the United States. I, I think Love that's it. what I got. They're comfortable. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing. You're welcome so much. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.